0: We're going to be in uh, Ruth chapter 4 this morning. We're going to finish up uh, Ruth. This has been a great book. Uh, something that just, I don't know, every time you study the scriptures in, a, in an in-depth way, it just, you learn all kinds of things. And so if you think I'm not learning, you're wrong. I, I'm learning right along with you as we go through this this journey together. And so we're going to finish up the book of Ruth this morning. And then I'm looking forward to it. We're going to go, we're going to stay in the Old Testament for a little while. We're going to go to... Um, the the life of Elijah and a little bit into Elisha, some of these prophets that rarely get spoken of and just have amazing stories in the Old Testament. So in Ruth chapter four, there's gonna be three main points I'm gonna make this morning. First is gonna be a look at Boaz and his being a steady man of his word. We're gonna sort of begin and end with this point. Second will be redemption by sacrifice and third, being blessed through the providence of God. So let's begin this morning by reading some of this chapter. We're going to start actually in the last verse of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 18, and we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 6. So please stand this morning uh, to honor the Lord as we read his word. Ruth, chapter 3, verse 18 through 4, verse 6. She replied, Wait, my daughter. And this is Naomi. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I in- impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Alright, you read this, this is not actually a passage that's largely, it, it, the primary point of this passage is not a real estate transaction, it sounds like it, but there's a whole lot more going on here than real estate, so let's, let's talk about what we see in God's word this morning. We're going to start first with the last verse of chapter 3, uh, 318, wait my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so my first point this morning, it hasn't been pointed out, but just bringing it into focus, that Boaz was a steady man of his word. Boaz was a steady man of his word. We've talked, we're going to talk about steadiness later. That's kind of how we're going to close this thing up. But for now, I want to talk about Boaz as a man of his word. What does it mean to be a person of your word? It means that what you say you will do, and he has told Ruth that he will redeem her. We're going to go about this thing. We're going to give one person a chance that I'm coming in to do it, and one way or another, you will be redeemed, and he has given his word on something that is very important, especially to them, and it is important for us to see the conjunction between trustworthiness and hard work. Whenever we say that we're going to do something and we purpose in our heart to do it and we express it and tell others that we're going to do it, it always requires hard work to accomplish that. We don't say uh, purpose in our heart to do something of any significance and it just naturally unfolds before us. We purpose in our heart to do it and then by hard work it is actually accomplished. People accomplish what they say they will do by three things I believe. The first is by being wise and not over-promising. And we see this in the life of Boaz. He is wise in the way that he states this out. He says, there's another person that can redeem you. I'm gonna go talk to them. We're gonna see how it works out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start working on this, and we're gonna see where the Lord takes us. And I believe that's wise. That's not over-promising. That's not saying something that you can't do or promising something that you're not sure about. The start of being a person of your word is being wise and not over-promising. I think secondly, people who keep their word work hard and intentionally to bring to pass what they say they're going to do in their life. This whole passage is about a strategy and a plan that Boaz had to accomplish what he had said that he would do. And then he went out and started working to do it. So we always must labor and put ourselves into action in order to do what we purpose to do. But prayerfully, number three, we trust God to be at work in his righteousness. So we're going to talk about providence a good bit today. But Boaz plans, states wisely what he's going to say. He gets to work, but all of it is being under the umbrella of the providence of God, trusting himself to what God is going to do. And those are three important things. So I'd ask you a couple of questions. First of all, are you a person of your word? Are you a person that does what you say you're going to do? Is that, would that describe you? If I asked your friends and your family members, is this person a person of their word, what would they say? Do you purpose wisely to do good and then get busy and go and do those things? Or are you a double-minded person, saying one thing and then waffling and going in a different direction and, and people are very unsure about what you say as to whether they can trust you or not? Do you promise foolish things? Do you go back on your word? Are you known for not following through with the things that you say? Do you overpromise and underdeliver on a regular basis such that people doubt your word? This is not a good character trait and should not be something that describes us as Christians. We should be wiser than that. We should be more careful than that. We should understand the providence of God in a way better than that that shapes our lives in a pattern that follows after what we see here with Boaz and with Ruth. So we're going to revisit this here at the end of the sermon. But for now, let's just see that Boaz gives his word that he's going to do something. And he is getting after it in this section. So, Verses 1 through 6, redeemed by sacrifice. So what's the situation? His plan is to go to the city gate because he's pretty sure that the guy he's looking for is going to pass by the city gate. And sure enough, there he comes. Sir, I need to talk to you. Have a seat. Let's talk. And sits the guy down and then brings the elders around. we got to remember that this this is the elders of the town, elders of the city. That was an oral culture back then, not a a written culture. There was no uh, office of record and deeds to write things down. So how do you attest to something? You get the elders around. Hey, y'all are going to witness this conversation. What's getting ready to happen here? Everybody listening to what's happening here? Yep, we're all listening. All right, well, here we go. And he tells this man that there is uh, Naomi, who has come back, is, has a piece of property in her family lineage that is up to be redeemed. And he is the closest redeemer. Hang on, we're going to talk about that in a moment. But he makes the man aware of this and gets this item of business out on the table. So what in the world is going on here? What are what are we talking about with all this back and forth of real estate and property? Well this is we gotta go do some background in order for you to understand this, but the background is very important. In Israel, God's chosen people were brought into a promised land, a land of promise that the Lord gave them. And when they came into that land of promise, he separated and spread out the tribes throughout this land of promise and divided land amongst them in a particular way. And the land that was given to the tribes and then broken down amongst the clans and amongst the family was specific land that was ancestral land to those families. It was not like a real estate market today where you just buy and sell to try to make a profit. And if I can sell this and move over here and make a few bucks, then great. It was absolutely not like that back then. Their ancestral land was tied specifically to the land of promise given to them and the tribe of their family and so on and so forth. But if people got financially in trouble, like they do now and like they did back then, and they needed to sell their land, then they could sell the land but the land still remained theirs in a certain way. So if their financial situation got better over time, they could go back and redeem the land. They could go and buy it back from that person at a reasonable price so they could get back to their ancestral family land. In a very loose way, think about a pawn shop today where you can go and take something and sell it, get money for it, but you can go back in a certain period of time and buy it back in a, in a very loose way, somewhat like that. However, if a person was never able to financially buy back their land, a close relative could go and buy back their land and redeem that land back into the family, back into the heritage of that tribe. Now, if the person or a family member, if nobody was ever able to buy this land back, the plan that the Lord had to keep this land tied to the specific tribes and ancestral lineage of these people was this fascinating idea of the year of Jubilee. So the year of Jubilee is is this. The Lord hashes out time uh, in sevens. It's very interesting. So The original creation week was seven days. We still function under that same exact seven-day week. And that's not a coincidence. Some of you have heard me talk about that before. Well, the next uh, hash mark for Israel was seven years. And every seven years, they were supposed to take one year off and take a break, a year of rest. I used to read that and think, that's the weirdest thing in the world. Like, how could anybody take a year of rest? Well, you know what? It's, it's crazy how you learn things as time goes on. We had a year of largely rest last year. We spent a lot of time at home last year, not running around to sports games and not doing all kinds of stuff. And I cannot tell you how many people I talk to that say, I really missed some parts of last year and the quietness of last year and the recharging of, of being down and still in a way that I have never been in my entire life. And so I think something about that seventh year relates to that. But when we take a seven year block and we multiply that by seven, we get a period of 49 years. And at the end of 49 years, on the 49th year during the day of atonement, the high priest was supposed to declare the following year, the 50th year, as the year of jubilee. And during that year, any land that had been sold, bought, and changed hands and was out of order was supposed to be reordered back to its original situation. So once basically in the lifetime of a person, they would experience the year of jubilee where things were reordered back to the way that they were supposed to be, and you can read all about that in Leviticus 25, but this gives you some context as to what in the world is going on here. We see a very specific illustration of this in 1 Kings 21, which I'll actually preach on here in a few weeks, but you have this uh, King Ahab, a wicked king who knows all these rules, knows exactly what's going on, but he sees this guy that doesn't live far from him that has a beautiful vineyard. His name is Naboth. And he goes to this man and says, I want your vineyard. I'd like to buy your vineyard. And Naboth says, I can't sell you my vineyard. This is our ancestral family land. This is is not mine to sell you, even to the king. But we'll see. I'll I'll, I'll hold that story for you as to what happens there. And we'll, we'll get back to that. But the point is he could not and would not sell the land even to the king. Leon Morris writes, a family's right to own its land was inalienable. Naomi was poor and could not retain her land, but it was a solemn family obligation to see that the land was not lost. And so Boaz's question to this first redeemer, the closest relative able to buy this land back into the family is, will you buy this piece of land and keep it in the family? And what's the guy's first answer? Yeah. That's great. I would I would love some more land. I mean, that's, what's not to love about more land? Any more crops, more, I can do all kinds of things. That it's more profitable for me is what we're gonna see here in a moment. What is really at the heart of the matter though is not the land because what's the purpose of the land? The purpose of the land is for people to live on that land and make a life and for families to multiply and grow and live for the Lord that the Lord Jesus might be praised. So the land serves a purpose for the development and growth of families. And so he goes quickly to the heart of the matter because with the land comes the obligation to marry Ruth, continue on that family line and to care for Naomi and to raise a family on that land so that this family heritage is not lost and wiped out from the earth. Well, listen, there's a lot of difference between thousands of years ago when this was written and there's some things that are just the same. If somebody offers you a piece of land and then somebody offers you a piece of land that also comes along with marrying somebody and taking their mother-in-law and all the obligations that come along with that, it radically changes the situation. And once all of this obligation comes along with the land, this guy quickly changes his tune and says, ah, that's gonna, that's gonna impair my own inheritance. Well, that's short, I think, for that's gonna cost me way too much. That's way more obligation than I'm interested in. And we have all been there. And we have talked about that a lot in this church. This message has not changed one bit from here until the time of Christ when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me and die to yourself and be willing to sacrifice deeply even everything that you have to follow after me. And that the way of Christ will always be a way of self-sacrifice. And I think we misunderstand this story and what is happening here if we don't realize that Boaz is sacrificing and doing something that is, Uh, above and beyond what he needs to do, and it's something that's gonna carry on throughout his lifetime. It's not an obligation that's gonna go away. It's something that he's obligating himself to for the rest of his life in order to do something that is right and good and commanded of the Lord. And so this person, for him, it's a cost-benefit analysis that doesn't make any sense, so he backs out of it and turns it over to Boaz. However, Boaz is determined to redeem Ruth by his own personal sacrifice. And it is not, we just cannot sail past this without making the direct connection to Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Because we are called in the New Testament, the redeemed of God, that Jesus himself redeems us. And he does not redeem us because it was profitable for him or something that was easy for him. We read all over the New Testament that our redemption cost Jesus everything, even obedience unto death upon a cross. And the redemption of Jesus Christ for us was motivated like the redemption of Boaz by love and by righteousness, but also by the will and command of God. Both things that are taking place in the redemption of Boaz. I would like to read a couple of verses that are very clear about this, uh, that Paul writes in Galatians. The first is from Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Galatians three thirteen says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ redeemed us from these things by taking a curse upon his own body. And if you flip over one page to Galatians 4, four through seven, he continues writing about this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son upon our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's an incredible verse right there. It's an incredible verse. What does it mean to redeem someone? It means to buy a person back, to rescue them from the control of another, to reclaim them. These are all analogies of what God is doing with us. And the Lord God did these things to us through Christ, bought us back, by paying the price in his own body, rescues us from the control of Satan and from evil things and breaks the bondage of sin in our life and reclaims us for his own. And as it says here, adopts us as sons. We go from being enemies and strangers to being adopted sons and daughters of God in the family of God. Our identity becomes those who are in Christ and that he loves us, that he gives us his Holy Spirit, that we might call him Abba Father, that near term of of affection and closeness, and we gain an inheritance in the kingdom of God, all by grace, not any of it that we have done or worked out on our own. And it's done by love, because Jesus did not look at our poor situation like Boaz looked upon Ruth and say, what can this person do for me? He doesn't look at our spiritual blindness and our spiritual death and our spiritual bondage and our spiritual uh, inability and say, how can this profit me? What can this person do for me? And I'm only going to help them if they they help themselves and do something for me. That is works religion. the, The Bible teaches us that salvation is by grace and because of the motivation of the love of God for us that Jesus came and humbled himself. We read about it clearly in Philippians chapter two and all throughout the gospels, that Jesus humbled himself in the form of a servant, abused, mocked, obedient unto death, but he was a man of his word, did what he said he was going to do. Three times we've seen already in the gospel of Luke that Jesus said, I will go to the cross and I will bear your sins and I will fulfill the will of the father. And then he went and did what he said he was going to do fulfilling all prophecy. And so when we apply this to Ruth and Naomi, Ruth in her redemption by Boaz rejoices. And Naomi is greatly blessed by being redeemed. And when I look at across this audience, I would ask you a question. Are you rejoicing in redemption, the redemption of the Lord? You might say, well, that's obvious. Yes, of course I do. But there are many that do not. And there are people here in this audience today, I believe that are not. Countless people that despise and never seek the redemption of Jesus Christ. There are countless people, though the door is open to them, they never seek the redemption of Jesus Christ. We should not overlook the fact that this path of everything happening in this book happens because of a godliness and a love of the Lord. Ruth does not come after Naomi. Uh, because of just her own will. She does it because it's right and because it's good and because she's godly. Boaz does not do the things that he does just because it's the natural course of things. He does it because it's godly and it's right and he wants to live for the Lord. And all these things that are coming together are coming together because of a love of God and a seeking after the Lord, not the natural course of things. There were countless other people during this time that dealt with difficult circumstances like this in totally different ways without looking to the Lord as as to what is the Lord's way of solving this problem. And so when you look at the sin and death and the bondage of your own life, are you trying to work out your own redemption are you going to the Redeemer? Are you humbling yourself and going to Jesus Christ, seeking his way, opening his word, saying, what does the scripture say about my terrible position? And how is it that I am supposed to live my life? And then going and walking in that pattern, believing what God says that we ought to believe, and in that, finding life and rejoicing in it. I want you to see yourself in the position of redemption. Let's learn from Ruth. Rejoice in the redemption of Jesus Christ. Believe and give thanks that you might pass from death unto life. Well, we looked at Boaz's keeping his word, redemption by sacrifice. And thirdly, I want to look at the blessed nature of the providence of God in this situation. In verses 7 through 10, the, the deal gets kind of sealed and, and this great hilarious Old Testament way where they take their shoes off and hand them to each other and that's how, that's how, they, sign, that's how they sign the paperwork. In front of the elders they hand their shoes to each other and, and the redemption is sealed that Boaz is redeeming Ruth And then verses 11 through 12, there's a blessing from the townspeople. They begin to to praise them and, and, and wish them well and bless them before God and pray for them. May your house multiply. May your children be influential and renowned and all these good things. And then in verses 13 through 17, which I want to read, we see this great reversal from sadness to blessing in the life of Ruth and Naomi. Verse 13. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, and the women in the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so we see here through this redemption comes marriage, comes a happy and stable situation that the Lord gives conception and a child is born. And Naomi, if we look back to chapter one, verse 20, who came out of this foreign land and said, I'm gonna change my name from Naomi to Mara, which means bitter, that my life is bitter sadness. And I am, I'm just at the bottom of the barrel to this to where the neighborhood comes around and blesses her and is, you're so blessed of the Lord. What a radical change of situation. Her heart's lifted up and she's gone from being totally alone in the world to having a a grandchild on her lap and living in a stable and good situation that honors the Lord. And so it is a radical reversal according to the providence of God. And so the question here is doctrinally, what is the providence of God? The providence of God is is roughly this. It's when the Lord is continually involved with all things, works with all created things, causing them to act as they do, directing them to fulfill his purposes. I'm gonna read that one more time. The providence of the Lord is the Lord being continually involved with all things, working with all created things, causing them to act as they do and directing them to fulfill his purposes. John Piper just wrote a book about the providence of God that's about this thick. It's about a thousand page book. And so there is so much that could be said on the providence of God, and it is worth your time and worth your study if you have not spent much time looking at this doctrine. But in brief, I would like to say just a few things because the providence of God, the workings of God and the orchestration of God behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes is all over the book of Ruth. God is continually involved in the book of Ruth in all aspects of this story. But in all aspects of this story, the people, the characters, Boaz, Naomi, Ruth are also working with God. And so we see real human agency, real actions of people that have real consequences in this story, which is what we're just talking about, about keeping your word and being a purposeful person. But God is directing and fulfilling his purposes. There's no chance at the beginning of this story that the end of this story is not gonna turn out exactly like God purposed for it to to turn out. There's no way that King David and everything that God has purposed for him is gonna be derailed somehow in this story. The Lord is going to accomplish his purposes in the lives of his people for his glory. And so we see accomplished in this story, the continued lineage of David going in a direction of heritage towards something much, much greater than what is happening in the life of Boaz and Ruth. And yet they are a part of what is happening. And in the same way, you and I are a part of something that is much greater than what is happening in our individual lives. And we're going to get back to that in just a moment. But this redemption story is pointing to the loving, costly, life-giving redemption of Jesus Christ to us. We must act upon what God has revealed to us about himself and his will as Boaz and Ruth do. And then we must entrust ourselves to God's providence. So many times this leads to exactly what we see in this story, a great reversal of things. Uh, I know that this has been very true in my own life. Uh, and some of that story is actually gonna come out in the newsletter this week. You can take a look at that, but I don't have time to get into it today. But some, some things that just were very difficult for me to deal with years ago, and to see how the Lord has brought many of those things full circle into a radically different situation is incredibly encouraging to me as far as the providence of God goes and all that we learn through that, that process of struggle and difficulty and trusting God and then seeing him faithful is something that builds our faith like nothing else does. However, there are also those that in this life, in this life, will not see that reversal. And I want to point point that out very clearly. There's a a great passage in Hebrews chapter 11 which is about faith and faithfulness. And many people whose lives were faithfully lived for the Lord, and there's brief accounts of them living for the Lord and how the Lord brought them by his providence through difficult situations and then into what it is that he had for them. And in this life, they were able to see a great blessing of the Lord upon their obedience and, and answers to their prayers and all these things. But seldom do we read the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 11, which speaks to those people that were faithful throughout their life, genuinely and earnestly loved the Lord and were seeking after his eternal kingdom and never received blessing in this life. That their blessing was a blessing yet to come in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so it says in Re- Hebrews 11, 35b and on, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment, and they were stoned and they were sawn in two and they were killed with the sword, and they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And you can go back and read more in Hebrews 11. He's talking about heaven, and he's talking about eternal life, and that there are many that will not see the the fruit of their prayers answered in this life. And I, as I think of our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Afghanistan that have suffered so much, there are many in those lands that will fall into this category. They will wander about destitute in the wilderness, and they will be poor and live in caves for the sake of Jesus. And they may not in this life ever receive anything other than that, but there will be those that you will meet in heaven one day that lived that way and did not give up hope in Jesus until the last day that they died and went to be with the Lord. That's incredible. That's faith that only the Holy Spirit can give you. None of us could last through that. But when we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ and come into his kingdom and are given his spirit, we are able to do things that we never could do before because we are convinced in our soul, as deep as we possibly can be convinced in our soul, that something different is going on in this world, and we are not gonna give up on it, and we are gonna keep going until the last day. And so, I just want us to see both of these things in the providence of God, because both of these things are present in the promises of God. But either way, either way, Christ be praised. If you've not listened to my sermon from some time ago, I'm going to get CJ to pull it up on the website and get it up to somewhere where people can find it more often. It was a sermon about the martyrdom of all the apostles of Christ other than John. How every single apostle, all the 12, died a martyr's death for Jesus Christ in seeking and serving after him. It's important for us to realize that, that they never gave up on the providence of God that they trusted God in poverty and death in deep hardship in good times in work and seeking children and having children in life direction we see that in Boaz in Ruth in Naomi in all godly people that in every basic aspect of a daily life that they trust in the providence of God believing the Lord has a purpose for his glory and for our good that he is working out that purpose. That's a short bit on the providence of God. So in summary and closing, I wanna say this. I have learned so much from this book. This book has just been way more impactful on me than I ever thought it was. I've not taught through this book before. And I am deeply challenged by the steady godliness of the two characters in this book, Boaz and Ruth. And we can add Naomi as well. But they are a steady, godly people. These are ordinary, everyday people not flashy, not heroic, not in a hurry, but devout in their day by day steadiness in their following after the Lord, making godly choices and trusting in the providence of God. They are godly and virtuous. They are dependable. They are loving and soft-hearted, but they're also hard-working. And if you're like me, you know a lot of people, and this may be you, you may be hard-working or soft-hearted. And the two of those things are hard to get together because if you're a hard driver, you tend to just run over people. But we've got hard workers that are soft-hearted and loving in this book, and it's beautiful. People that keep their word and their commitments, people that are worthy in character, people of action, people that are wise with resources, people that care about family and heritage, people that treat each other with respect and kindness, people that are generous, people that are self-sacrificing. And I would urge you as we walk away from this book to look at the lives of these people because I believe very much we need less flashy people in this world and we need more dependable, steady, godly people that look like Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. We need steady, godly people that day in and day out love and serve the Lord. Year after year, in good times and in bad times, people that trust in the overarching providence of God, that love their family and honor the Lord. If you have a steady but not flashy spouse, I want you to be thankful for that person. And I want you to tell them that you're thankful for their steady godliness. And thank God for them. If you are single and looking for a spouse, I pray that you will look for this type of spouse. Not the flashy person, not the, not the person that's always looking to be in front of people, but the steady, godly person. If you know that what I'm saying does not describe you, then it is time to go to the Redeemer that your life might be changed, that you might become like this, starting with salvation, that if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the first time and you're trying to redeem yourself from bondage of sin and death, it'll never work. Come to Jesus Christ, put your faith in him, be discipled in all of his ways and spend much time in John 15. John 15 is about abiding in Christ, about walking with God. There's no no accidents in the way the scriptures describe our relationship with God. Walking with someone, you can cover a lot of distance over time, and it's conversational, and it's relational, and we are to be with God in this way. We are to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that the Lord would accomplish his purposes in your life. And I'm going to end with this word from Leon Morris about the genealogy at the end of this chapter. God works out his purpose generation after generation. Limited as we are to one lifetime, each of us sees so little of what happens. A genealogy is a striking way of bringing before us the continuity of God's purpose through the ages. The process of history is not haphazard. There is a purpose in it all, and the purpose is the purpose of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this book I know that it was recorded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this beautiful and purposeful story of the intertwining of these people's lives might be studied by us today and used of your spirit to teach us what it means to live a godly life. That it might point to the great and final redemption of Jesus Christ, our Lord, freeing us from the bondage of sin and death, that we might live a new life in Christ Lord, we pray this today. Help us, I pray first for any person that is not a believer in Jesus Christ, that they would stop trying to redeem themselves, something that will never work, and they would hear the words of the Lord, and that they would turn to the redemption by grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that they would go from being poor in spirit and blind and separated from God to be adopted into the family of Christ, that they might have new life. Lord, I pray for us as Christians that we would be truly devoted to living for you. I pray that we would seek to honor you in all of our ways and that we would be steady people, daily opening the scriptures, weekly gathering together for worship, never stopping in our seeking after Christ and hoping in the providence of God. We love you, Jesus. We pray for your work in our midst. In Christ's name we pray, amen.